You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Together, and I, I want to just say something that may sound weird, and you may not hear preachers say what I'm about to say, but um, the Lord delights in you being here today. The Lord delights in His people gathering together to sing praises to Him. The Lord delights in us lifting our voices to Him. You say, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, you don't, you don't understand. Um, I've had a really bad week. And I just think God's sitting in heaven with his arms crossed and, and his, his, his nose wrinkled and God's like, no, um, uh, you know, you, you missed that note, Michael. And I'm really not happy with that song. Or maybe, maybe you sing out a key and God's really not happy with that. Or maybe you had a terrible morning on your way to the gathering. And so God's got to be sitting there saying, yeah, I'm happy with some of the folks there. But with you, I'm really not happy or delighted or glad that you're here. I would say because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, God the Father looks down on this gathering, and he is delighted in the fact that you have come to gather as his family. Um, I don't know what kind of my sister's here today and her husband, two of my favorite people in all the world. I wouldn't tell the rest of my family that, but I can say that without anybody else around. And I, I don't know what kind of day she's had. I don't know what kind of sin she's been involved in this week. I, I've known her for um, over, almost 60 years, and I've never known her to commit a sin, right? Um, she's one of the best people in the world that I know. Um, and that's, her husband said that. But I'm so delighted to, to see her today. I really am. Just I wanted to cry when Mandy said, Janice is here. I knew she was coming, but I forgot. And, and the Lord is delighted in us gathering, in us singing, in us worshiping, in us praying. He's, he's listening and loving what he's seeing and hearing because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that because what happens a lot of times, and I think it's a product of false religion. We're going to be talking about false religion, man-made religion in the text today. A lot of people would say, well, you know what? I don't have to gather with the people of God to please God. I don't have to sing with the saints of God. I can just go kind of do it on my own. I can have my own man-made religion. I can create my own idols. I can even have a room in my house and set those idols up. I can even go get me my own personal priest. That's what happened in the text today. And, and I'll just have man-made, self-serving, self-created, kind of do it my way, just me and God. Can I tell you that that's not the Bible way? It's not the Bible way. As we come to Judges 17 this morning, we're almost to the end of this series, and Judges is broken down into three parts. First of all, Judges speaks of forgetfulness. The second generation that came into the land forgot about the, the miraculous power and works that God did in the life of his children, so they forgot. We see that in 1, 1 to 3, 6, but when we come to chapter 3 and verse 7 and we go to chapter 16 and verse 31, that whole section there, most of what we've been studying in Judges is not about forgetfulness, but it's about faithfulness. It's, it's not about the faithfulness of the people of God. It's about the, the faithfulness of the God of the people. And God over and over and over again has been so faithful 
to watch his people go into sin and mess up and reject him and worship idols and fall into slavery. And then God in his grace and mercy and in his faithfulness goes in and rescues his people only to see them fall again. Judges is pointing not to the faithfulness of those men, but to the faithfulness of a, a, a judge and a savior and a king who is coming one day to ultimately deliver us and we will be with him forever to sin no more. It will be ultimately defeated. So it's about forgetfulness. It's about faithfulness. But one writer said it seems like when we come to the beginning of chapter 17, it's like you came to the end of the pavement and now you've hit a, a gravelly washed out road beginning in chapter 17 because what we're going to see in verses in chapter 17 to 21 is foolishness. And this foolishness is, is a product of life without God. This foolishness is a product of the absence of the presence of God. Now, God's presence, presence is not absent, but these people are living like God's presence is absent. And in the absence of the presence of God, we then create our own religion. We create man-made religion. We even put God's name on it. And so think about that. You're wondering, what in the world happened? There's such a stark contrast between chapter 16, what we've been reading about in chapter 3 to 16, and now we come to chapter 17, and it's so different. It's though things are happening, and God is not involved. God has stepped back, and the writer is just sort of narrating because all of these crazy things he really doesn't want to have anything to do with. So Judges chapter 17. There was a man on the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, and this is, this is crazy, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. <laughs> his mom had some silver stolen. She said, whoever stole this silver, I cursed them. And now he's saying, Mom, remember that silver that was stolen? Remember that curse that you uttered? I took the silver. All of a sudden, his mother changes her tone about the thievery and about the curse on the thief. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Here we go throwing Yahweh's name around. Here we go throwing God's name around in the middle of our lunacy. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord to Yahweh, from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. We're going to see that over and over again. We're also going to see it in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse number 15, which says, you will be cursed. A judgment will come on you for making carved images and calling them God. You will be judged for limiting God to some image that you create in your own mind. You cannot limit God to these images. And you can't create images that remind you of some facet or characteristic of God because any facet or characteristic that you emphasize in the image is going to then be to the exclusion of all of the other great things about God. So we don't create images. We don't carve images. We don't have metal images and call them God, although we know we do that. There are a lot of things that we live like our gods in our life, that are lords over us, that control our time and our energy and our resources. We know that. Somehow we think it's okay. We are idolaters. Let us be honest. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, not the 1,100 that she promised, 
She just tithed on it, I guess, except she gave almost 20% and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. Again, the very exact same Hebrew words that were used in Deuteronomy chapter 27. And it was in the house of Micah. So here we have this image that's carved. He sets this image up in his own house. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. We're going we're gonna to set up some man-made worship here. In those days, listen to this. The guy, st- he's looking at what's going on. He's like, what in the world is going on? Why are these things going on? Why is this craziness happening? Here's why. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There was no good king in Israel that instructed the people, that lived by the law of God, that cared enough about the people to tell them the truth. There was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. He's not espousing the worship of Micah, the creation of an idol, the lunacy of his mom's reaction to his thievery, bending all of the rules to get to the point that they were at. He's not espousing setting up a shrine in your house where you can go have your personal worship to the exclusion of gathering with the saints of God. He's saying these people were doing this because there was no king and everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And this is a product of these people doing what was right in their own eyes, not the instruction of God from his word. I would warn you at this juncture, examine what you call or think is worship. Examine your heart this morning. Are there things in your life that you call worship that you think is worship, but it's really something that you created yourself? Are there views of God that you hold? Are there reactions to God that you and your humanness have that indict God? Because God did not perform up to your standards, didn't do what you wanted him to do, didn't answer the prayer you thought he should answer, didn't do for your child what you thought he should do for your child. Is that not a form of a false worship, setting up a shrine, creating an idol, and bowing down at that idol so that idol will perform in a way that is pleasing to me? Verse 7, Now there was a young man of Bethlehem of Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. I don't know why he left Judah. I don't know what he was looking for, but he left he left Judah, a Levite, and as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah, and Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver and a suit of clothes and your living. So now this priest is going in. Micah says, you're a Levite. You can be a priest. And I'm going to now continue bolstering my man-made religion with some artifacts and some images and some outlines of what true worship looks like. He offered this guy a fair price, and this guy agreed to come and be his priest. He couldn't turn down the offer. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. So he's got his own ordination service going on now. The young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite priest. I've got everything right sacramentally. I've got everything right um, as, as it relates to my ecclesiology. And I know now if I can get all of my 
my sacraments and my rituals and my ecclesiology and my man-made structure right that God all of a sudden is going to prosper me. The objective of all that Micah is doing in this text is for his own self-progress and self-interest. Um, by the way, why did you come to Christ? Why do you believe in Christ? Why did you come to Are you scared God's not, God's not going to bless you if you, don't, if you don't come and gather this morning? Did you get saved because you wanted good things to happen, because you wanted prosperity? Uh, why, why are you here today? Why do you do your devotions? Because you think if I don't do my devotion, something bad's going to happen? This guy's getting it all in order, and it's all in order because he knows that prosperity will come to him because he's dotting every I and crossing every T and checking every box. We move to chapter 18. He says it again, the, um, the no king clause. In those days, there was no king in Israel. So what happens as a result of that is utter chaos. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan were seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Why not? The people of Dan didn't go in and conquer the land, therefore they were not able to occupy the land, therefore the people of Dan had to dwell in the hill country, therefore the people of Dan were unable to plant crops and provide for their families and grow, so they're wandering around like nomads because they ultimately found themselves in a place of disobedience, trying to do things their own way, rejecting the clear commands of God. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of them, their tribe from Zorah and from Eskel, to spy out the land and explore it. And they said, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. I'm not sure if they knew him or probably they recognized his dialect. You know, hey, you're from North Carolina or you're from New York. This guy came from Judah. We recognize his accent. We recognize his dialect. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, It was just so unusual for a Levite to be working at a shrine of a man named Michael with his carved images sitting in it. What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Michael dealt with me. He has hired me, and I've become his priest, his own personal priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest, so here these men are that are living in disobedience to God. Now want God, and I want to find out if God's going to bless them as they're running from God. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Here we go talking the God talk again. Verse 7, then the five men departed and came to Laish. Laish is not the land of God is not the promised land. It's not the land that he gave them. It's a completely different place. And saw the people who were there, how they lived in security, and after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtal, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it's very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. 
the place they were not supposed to go, taking advantage of an unsuspecting people all because they equated their relationship with God to their own personal prosperity. All because they just wanted to be in a relationship with God so that everything in their life here would continue to go well. So, verse 11, 600 of the men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zor and Estiel and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On their account, on, on this account, that place is called, and I'll skip that on this day, in my Bible, it's on two different lines and hyphenated, and so I'm not going to try to process that in my brain. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim, and they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in the house of God there is an ephod? So, so here, here now, they've been attracted to this man's personal uh, idols. And they think these personal idols are somehow going to perform and give them favor. There's an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image. Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone up to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. <laughs> so here's a guy that took $200 from his mom's life savings that he had stolen and given back and created a carved image that he's going to use as the centerpiece of his worship. And now here's some ruthless men coming along that are going to conquer an unsuspecting people outside the boundaries of the land that God said was theirs, and they think that there is some power in this false God. We're no different. We're no different. I texted a friend last night, and um, my, my soul gets stirred on occasion. Does your soul ever get stirred on occasion? Do things bother you on occasion? Do you feel like you lack peace on occasion inside? Uh, I, I like peace a lot. You say, well, you just, not, you just aren't very spiritual if you lack peace. Here, here's, here's what I, I would say to you, that the only source of peace is Jesus Christ. And when I lack peace, it's not because things are so messed up in my life, because usually things are so messed up in my life. And I'm not going to resolve them all this side of heaven. There are so many things messed up on the inside of my heart, on the inside of my mind, and I can't sort them out. It seems like the older I get, the worse they get. And so I'm like, I want some peace. So here's what I think will bring me peace. What I think will bring me peace is if I can just make everything in my life right, if I can make every relationship right, if I can just call everybody that I think doesn't like me or is mad at me, and I can just say, hey, is everything okay? Or if I think maybe, you know, that, that, that you're, you know, you got issues with me, I'm going to be like, hey, I, I, I'm not going to have peace. And well, you know what? We're never going to make things right. We're never going to make things right. I'm not saying we shouldn't try, but here's what I'm saying. We seek peace everywhere but in Christ. Because the reality is if there's trouble between me and my wife and we can't make it right, I still ought to be able to pursue peace in Christ. But, but here's, here's the deal. We look for peace in so many places 
and think we find it but never do when we were created to find our peace in Christ and Christ alone. But our desire for peace is never satisfied this side of heaven. What happens inside of our soul is there is a longing for peace that is only found in Christ. And as long as there is a longing for peace that is only found in Christ, there will always then be a longing for Christ that is never satisfied until we are with Christ. But what I have to ask myself is, what am I longing for in this longing? And my flesh says I'm longing to satisfy this desire for peace in some other means besides Christ. But then I'm reminded that the only way to satisfy my longing is to satisfy it in Christ. And so I pursue him. I wish I could say that's the way That's the way I operate. It's not. It's not. But I should. But I should. Here these folks were. They've got a guy that created an idol that created his own personal, personal swine, s- s- uh, shrine that created his, his own man-made worship. And these guys are saying, maybe that guy got some peace from that. Maybe we can get some peace from that. Let us go try this false form of worship to give us peace, and it doesn't. Christ and Christ alone gives us peace. Everything being right in your world, everything being right materially, everything being right financially, everything being right relationally is not going to give you peace. Peace is only found in Christ. Stop looking at idols. We do that, folks. We do that. Every one of us has probably got a list, at least in our mind, and we're saying, man, if I could just have this, things would be better. My life would be better. If I could just do this, things would be better. My life would be better. If, I could, if, a, if a rental place would just come open on the beach where we're looking to try to go on, my life would just be better. Things would just be better. If things were better at my job, things would just be better. So here these guys are. They're stealing as an act of worship. They're stealing somebody else's idols. Can it get any crazier than that? Somebody who says they love God and want to worship God are breaking into a man's little personal church and stealing the idols out of his church. Isn't there some... I remember when I was a... uh, I won't tell that story. And when these men went into Michael's house and took the carved images, the ephod, the household gods, and metal image of the priest, they said... Um, The priest said to them, so the priest is like, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, priest, man of God, shut up. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Wow. It's better for you to be priest to the house of one man or priest to the tribe and a clan of Israel. So they're reasoning it through. They've reasoned it out in their mind. They've got it figured out. They're going to get the blessing of God. They're going to have a priest with them. And the priest's heart was glad. (laughs) You can't make this up. He took the ephod of the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them, verse 22. When they had gone a distance from the house of Micah and the men who were in the house near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such company? And he said, listen to this, listen to this. You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. What, what have I got left? Notice that this is the epitome of man-made gods. 
You take my gods that I made and the priest that I'm paying that was glad to leave me for a better gig and go away and I don't have anything left. How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? You've taken my whole world. You've taken my whole means of prosperity. You've taken my whole means of blessing. And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. That's a real spiritual thing to do once you get some idols and a priest. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned back and went back to his home. Obviously, his God wasn't performing very well for him in that moment. Verse 27, but the people of Dan took what Micah had made. There again, we are seeing the identity of his God, something that he made. And the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, the land that was not promised to them by God, and to a people quiet and unsuspecting, a, a humble people, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they built the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born in Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And get this, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image. It wasn't God's object of worship. It was Micah's that he made again as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. What do we, what do we make of this story? Um, the, the, the main point I would want you to get out of this is, is, is this point. To reduce God to controllable status is to reject God completely. To reduce God to controllable status is to reject God completely. Can, can, I, can I just rock your world and shock you for just a second? Most of us believe that we have a God that we can control. And most of us don't want a God that we can't control. Most of us here today are scared to say, Thy will be done. Most of us here today are scared to tell God to take our children and have his will with them. We're scared of a God that we can't control. We're scared of a God that won't answer our prayer. We're scared of a God that won't control sickness or disease. And sometimes he doesn't. We're scared of a God that would let us lose our job. We're scared of a God that would let us lose our house. We're scared of a God that would, that would take everything from us and leave us with nothing but him. We're scared of that kind of God. But let us wake up this morning and come to this realization to reduce God to controllable status is to reject God completely. A God that can be created from metal, confined to a room, and controlled by a self-promoting priest is not the kind of God that you want to serve no matter what you call him. Now, there are three things in the text that I want to break down for you. Number one, the identity of man-made religion. Let me hasten through it. It's all in the text. We talked about some of it already. First of all, man-made religion is impressive. Man-made religion is impressive. I want to tell you something. Micah and his mom and his family, when you walked in the house, you knew these were some spiritual people. These were some spiritual people. 
Hey, can I show you my room in here? Oh, wow, what kind of room is that? Look at all the gods in this room. Look at all the artifacts. These were some spiritual people. Their desires, their speech, their resources, their giving, their symbols, dedicated space in their home was impressive. They used the God word a lot, the Lord word a lot, the Jesus word a lot. They used the name of God freely, but many times we use the name of God freely, but we deny his character. We deny his nature. Just because we're serious and sincere doesn't mean that our religion isn't man-centered and man-made, or as one writer said, homemade. A lot of our religion is homemade, and quite frankly, it is Impressive. Secondly, not only is it impressive, but it's pragmatic. Their religion was a religion that makes life work. That's what we want. We want a religion that makes life work. We want it to work for our kids and for our marriages and for our job and for our health and for our answered prayer and for the kind of house we want and for a car. A lot of times we say when things are going good, praise God. He, he answered my prayer. He gave me this thing. Praise God. Why? Because our religion is pragmatic. Our religion is a means to an end that, that most... Our religion is a means to an end and it's the same end that most lost people are pursuing as well. They want their life to work out too. It's pragmatic. Thirdly, man-made religion is subjective. It's personal. It's controllable. It's, it's me and God. It's a violation of God in community. We deny that. I want to tell you that if you say, I, I don't have to come here, I can worship on my own, I will tell you that you are in violation of the Word of God to neglect the assembling of yourselves together, and you have flat-out lied to yourself to say that I don't need to gather with the saints of God before the God of heaven, that God will just delight in me if I do my own thing and create my own system and have my own room in my house for my own personal worship. I'm not saying we shouldn't worship personally. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a place to pray and to read God's word, but I am saying that that in and of itself is not enough and subjective worship is not enough and us sitting around um, you know, looking at other people with disdain because our worship is subjective is not enough. God delights when we gather in community. God delights when we do life in community. God delights when we sing together as his gathered people. God delights when we pray together as his gathered people. You say, well, I could do all of that alone. And you'll find yourself, if you're not careful, in a subjective posture toward God. And you'll be hard-pressed to find many references in the New Testament that are in the singular. Most of them are in the plural as the saints of God have gathered together. Fourthly, man-made religion is self-serving, is self-centered, is self-promoting. I know now since I've got my personal God and my personal religious system that I've got a God that is going to serve me well and give me what I want and he's going to work for me and make me happy. Fifthly, man-made religion is material-focused and not relationship-focused. They made an idol out of metal. That is, that is, uh, that is um, the rejection of relationship. Material-focused and not relationship-focused. An inanimate object, not a love relationship with God and his people. A God who can be made, and we see it in, in Judges 18.24, 
And, and one writer said this. He said, a God who can be made is a contradiction of terms. And most of us have things that we have made or others have made for us that we treat like God. And then finally, man-made religion is rejected and judged by God. That's why I referenced Deuteronomy 27, 15, because he says these two exact words that we find in the text over and over again that these people are setting up as their God. God is going to judge this kind of worship, making carved images that are supposedly representing him. One writer said, the tragedy of man-made religion is that it always reduces God to someone who can be controlled rather than seeing God as the one who is in control. And there's something about us, folks, that thinks if we can manipulate God to control outcomes, that that's a good religious system. If we can manipulate God to control outcomes, that's a good religious system. That's what we're in it for as opposed to saying, I don't know what's going to happen and I can't control what's going to happen. God's in control and I'm going to trust him. We don't like that. We struggle with that. Secondly, the second thing we see is the insanity of man-made religion. The insanity of man-made religion. The first thing is the identity of man-made religion. It's all in the text. Secondly, the insanity of man-made religion. Let me, let me cover the insanity quickly. Here's the insanity. Number one, you make up the rules as you go as opposed to following the clear, simple teaching of Scripture. You make up the rules as you go as opposed to following the clear, simple teaching of Scripture. We see it from the outset. I'm going to curse the one that stole my 1,100 pieces of silver. Uh, Mom, I stole the silver. I'm going to bless you, my son. And not only am I going to bless you, but I'm going to give you 20% of that silver, and all of a sudden now you go create a carved image. Every situation is the opportunity to come up with the creation of a personally crafted response to the current dilemma. Every time we face a dilemma, we craft some response that is another nuance to our false religion, to our man-made religion. Every time you encounter man-made religion people, there's always a new twist. There's always a new discovery. They make it up as they go. Folks, we're not trying to make it up here. All we have is Scripture. That's where we start. That's what's in the middle. That's what's at the end. And for, for your life and for us as a community of believers, all we have is Scripture and the Spirit of God working through the Word of God among the people of God. The insanity of man-made religion, secondly, is filled with false assurance about the immediate and the ultimate. These guys were sure that this setup was going to be good for them. I, I know I'm secure. I've got, a, I've got an idol. I've got a room. I, I, and so, so these people are like, hey, can, can you, hey, my, uh, Levite, can you pray for us? We want assurances of the future. Hey, we're going to this land, Laish. It's not the land God promised us, but we're going to steal these idols. We're going to take them with us. Why? Because this is an assurance of blessing. I can't tell you how many times somebody's died and I've had to do a funeral and they said, he was a good man. Those are their assurances. Or he was a member of the lodge. Shouldn't have said that. Like lodge membership's going to get you into heaven. It ain't. I don't care what lodge you're a member of. I don't care how many degrees, up to 98.6, you ain't getting in. That's not getting you in. False religion is filled with all sorts of false assurances. I found it fascinating, and, and I want to I just read a quote, and, and it kind of speaks to uh, maybe what a lot of us uh, feel like, um, and this is from 
Um, Dale Ralph Davis, you can check him out. He's a Presbyterian pastor. Um, here's what Davis had to say. He said, one, one form such syncretism takes is that of sacramentalism, believing that some degree of conformity in religious externals will surely draw down the divine approval. Micah thinks this way in 1713, yet he is confident that he has Yahweh's favor because he now has an actual Levite as his priest rather than merely his own son. Davis goes on to say, we have our own forms of such magic, of thinking we can switch God's grace on automatic. With some, it's a superstitious regard for infant baptism, thinking that if the child is done, then he or she is covered and protected. Or others think that walking down the aisle on the fifth stanza of an invitation hymn is the same thing as entering the kingdom of God. It's still false religion, and it's still stupid. It doesn't dif differ from Micah, Micah's in principle, but only in form. Yet, for that reason, it may remain invisible to us. Please, the author is not condemning walking down the aisle or infant baptism. He's saying if you view those things as sacraments that render to you the favor of God, then you've done something externally and expecting it to produce something internally, and it's not. It's not. That's the lunacy of, that's the lunacy of false or man-made religion. It's filled with false assurances. Uh, the, the, the insanity of man-made religion is that it, it twists and rejects Scripture. Uh, Micah, the priest, the Danites, everyone in the story at some point had access to the clear revelation of God and either compromised it or rejected it. Fourthly, the insanity of man-made religion longs for and leads to self-justification. The ends justifies the means, no matter how severe the sinfulness of our actions. We're going to worship God, so we're going to steal these gods. We're going to worship God, so we're going to go in and kill all of these unsuspecting people and set up a shrine, and all of a sudden now, God is going to be happy with us. We are self-justifying because we've got our idols. The insanity of man-made religion destroys innocent people. The insanity of man-made religion ends up with a God in our image that fulfills our fallen fleshly desires with no end in sight. There is no limit to the perverted layers of man-made religion. In man-made religion, God is this blob. And one writer uh, that I just read said, God is this blob of of matter that we can just shape any way that we want to shape him. Give me a different circumstance, I'll shape my God a different way. If I want to sleep with my girlfriend, I don't have a girlfriend, but if you're dating and, and so if someone, let me just be clear, wanted to sleep with their girlfriend or their boyfriend, we're, and, but they say, man, we love Jesus, but we're going to figure out a way to shape and, and create this blob of God to fit whatever our circumstance is. We're constantly doing that. So we see, we see the identity and then we see the insanity. But finally, I want to turn to the remedy to man-made religion. The goal of man-made religion is to get access to God so we can manipulate God to do our will. And if God doesn't do our will, look out. Why are you angry with God? Why is your heart cold toward God? 
Why are you bitter and cynical? Is it not because God let you down? And if you've got a God that can let you down, you've got a God that you created yourself. It's not because God let you down. It's because you asked for something you didn't get. Man-made religion essentially reduces God to controllable status, and to reduce God to controllable status is to reject God completely. The goal of true faith is to give God access to our heart so that we desire Him, so that we delight in Him as He is, and not in what we think He should be and do. The goal is for us to delight in Him and to delight in His will. That's the goal of faith in Christ and Christ alone. So, so the, the remedy to man-made religion, and, and it hinges on this thought of, of the no-God formula. He keeps going back to that. Um, and here's what he's saying. Had there been a faithful God-honoring king, a faithful king, a just king, a righteous king, none of these things would have happened. Had there been a faithful God-honoring king, had there, been a, had there been a just king, had there been a righteous king, had there been a godly king, had there been a king with integrity, none of these things would have happened. So we see, first of all, the absence of a faithful king. I would suggest to you this morning that what goes on in our lives a lot of times in our man-made religion is the absence of a faithful king. We have taken so many things and put them in the place where the, the king of kings belongs. And I would ask you, who is the king in your life? Who controls your life? Who is Lord of your life? It, if it is not, listen, if it is not Jesus Christ, then you have put some other king and Lord in his place. And it is, I promise you, a, a lesser king's. When, when our hearts are not resting in the arms of the only good king, we have imprisoned and enslaved our life by a, a draining tyrant who lies and steals and destroys and leaves us confused and empty and tired. That's why Jesus cries out in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says to us who have been worshiping at the altars of an inferior king, who have been, who have been uh, attaching the, the, the U-Haul trailer of our life up to the promises of all of these inferior kings, these lies. Stop. Unhitch yourself from them. Come to me. You labor and you're heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Micah cries out, you've taken my idols. You've taken my God that I have made. What am I going to do? Ladies and gentlemen, let us, let us renounce our idols because there is only one who has the words of life. The disciples in John 6 said, where can we go? You can't go anywhere. Christ and Christ alone has the words of life. Your idols do not have the words of life. So we see the absence of a faithful king, but there is the promise of a faithful king. When everything is stripped away and Jesus is all we have, we will be awakened to the reality that Jesus is not only all that we need, but that Jesus is all that we really want. He is the king of kings, the only worthy king. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He is the only king that saves from sin. He is a loving king, and his kingdom is filled with people that he loves, that love him, that love each other. Did you hear me? 
He is a loving king. His kingdom is filled with people that love him, people that he loves, people who love each other. There is no other love like this love. There is no other king like this king. There is no other kingdom like this kingdom. There are no other people on this planet like the people in his kingdom. It is a kingdom that is characterized by a perfectly righteous king. He is perfect and sinless and operating out of beauty and honesty and humility and grace. It is a kingdom that is sacrificed by sacrifice. The king sacrificing himself for his people. The king sacrificing himself for his people. Laying down his life for those that he loves. Sacrificing his life to remove the curse and the offenses and the barriers between us and a holy God. It's a kingdom characterized by victory. And it's victory not in a battle that we fight, but in a battle that he has won. He has risen victoriously over our greatest enemy, which is death. And he calls us to live in and celebrate and experience life now and forever in his victory. And all of this will be a tangible reality one day. You see, I think we live in Judges 17 and 18 in in 2021. I think if we looked at the land that we live in, if we looked at the character of our churches and the character of our spiritual lives, we'd find that most of us look more like Judges 17 and 18 than we do like a kingdom that has Jesus Christ as its king. But I want to assure you this morning that our king is coming back and every knee will bow and every tongue will admit that Jesus Christ is king over everything. And that will be a great day for everyone who rests their hope in him. You can't be righteous enough or good enough to get into the kingdom, but Jesus was if you will trust his perfect righteousness, if you will trust his sacrifice for your sin and rest in what he did and stop trying to pay for it yourself, and if you will trust in the fact that he has been victorious over sin and believe in a resurrected Savior, and if you will trust him today, then you don't have to worship at the altar of man-made religion. You don't have to keep trying to perform. You don't have to keep trying harder. You can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Have you done that today? Or is your life interwoven with the fabric of man-made religion? And that's a question you have to answer. To reduce God to controllable status is to reject Him completely. When our faith is wrapped up in a God that we are constantly bending to our fallen, selfish, man-centered will, something is dreadfully wrong. Yet, that is the cornerstone of American Christianity. But there is a better way. There is a better king, and his name is Jesus Christ. Joyfully surrender to him today and experience the abundant life that he provides Every Sunday at South Point, we remember our King. We remember His perfect righteousness. We remember His sacrificial death. We remember His resurrection. And we look forward to His return. We 
remember that He and He alone is the object of our worship. We remember that His will and His will alone is right and perfect. And so we come as we close the service to remember the Lord as an act of worship. We're internally bowing down to Him and saying we have nothing but who Christ is and what He has done. And we will commit our lives as we leave this place this week to walking in newness of life because of His finished work. So Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body. And He said, drink ye all of it. Pray with me this morning. Lord, in in all of our confusion, in all of our struggles, in all of the voices that have spoken into our um, religious God compartment in our lives, I pray that your word would help us sort those things out. No, No doubt, No doubt we struggle with lies that we believe. We struggle with things that we have been taught that are not in Scripture. And no doubt, as the residue of Eden and our fallenness, we really do want life to go our way. And Lord, the truth of the matter is we'd probably do just about anything to control outcomes. I pray you would convict us this morning that that you are all wise, that you are all knowing, that you are all powerful, that you are all glorious. But also convince us in our heart that you are so kind, that you are so loving, that you are so good. Convince us this morning through the picture of the cross that nobody loves us like you love us. And I pray that that would move our heart first of all to repent of the the untruths that we believe and of our man-made religious practices. I pray that we would repent of those and I pray that we would fall at your feet today and without hesitation or reservation say, Thy will be done find great joy in that resolution not knowing what the outcome might be you are our great king, our lord our savior our friend let us believe that this morning